This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. The shocking arrest of a six-year-old girl exposes a troubling pattern and ignites a campaign for change. This is the Kaya Roll Story. Megan, just when you thought you've heard it all. I was like, did she just say a six-year-old arrest? I mean, we've heard of juveniles arrested, but six years old? It's its hard to imagine. Yeah, I think you're going to be shocked over and over again during the course of this episode. But I do believe that this story, along with probably some of the research that our listeners will do after they hear this story, it will spark some outrage that will lead to action. I feel very confident about that. Amy, is this one suggested by a listener or did you find this one on your own? I'm just curious. This one I found on my own. It came across my news feed. I saw a headline and I was like, oh, I must have read that wrong. I must have read 16. Right. Or, you know, right. Maybe it said 16 and I left out the one. So I went back and I was like, wait, what? Ugh. And of course, I had to dive into it and you're going to be disgusted by this case, I can assure you. Oh, boy. But again, there are a lot of action items in okay. today's story. So hopefully we can end this on somewhat of a hopeful note. Okay. Let's not waste any time here, Megan. Let's meet Kaya. Kaya was born in 2013 in Florida. Now, this little girl had a really tough start. She was born unresponsive. Luckily, she did survive. And I don't know anything about her parents or the circumstances surrounding her parents, but I do know that her grandmother, Marilyn Kirkland, was her primary caregiver. In fact, she was there from day one. She was even in the delivery room when Kaya was born. And by all accounts, Marilyn provided Kaya with a very loving home. The two were extremely close. But as she grew, Kaya had some serious health problems, the most severe of which was sleep apnea. And this would cause her to get very little sleep at night. In fact, many nights she would only get a few hours of sleep. Now, just very quickly, in case you aren't aware, sleep apnea is a potentially serious sleep disorder where your breathing starts and stops. We see this more often in adults than children. However, you do see it in children sometimes. And when you do, it often occurs between the ages of two and eight during the period of tonsil growth. I have a friend whose daughter has this. Oh, yeah. Really? And she she wakes up like every 20 minutes. It's she does not get a good night's sleep. So they are trying to address this as well. Yeah, it, it's very serious. The good news is that many children do outgrow it. It is due often to large tonsils. So as, you know, children get older, they get tonsils removed or there's other treatments. Right. Megan, I know you know getting proper sleep is very important. I know you need your what do you need your 8, 9, 10? I really need a minimum of eight. Okay. I like nine and I thrive on 10. <laughs> and if I could get James treatment for sleep apnea at this point to ensure my better sleep, I would. Well, you can, Megan. So obviously sleep is very important for anyone, but Kaya was a very young child. And at six years old, sleep is extremely important. Children need much more sleep than adults. And at the young age of six, It is suggested that they sleep minimum nine hours, but really thrive with 12 hours of sleep. So we're talking about a child who's getting just a couple of hours of sleep a night. So this was pretty problematic. Not only would Kaya often fall asleep in the middle of completing tasks at home, 
This would also happen at school. And in addition to falling asleep, she was extremely irritable. She would often throw tantrums during class, sometimes leading to kicking and crying. And our case begins during one of these outbursts. Now, six-year-old children throw tantrums even with a lot of sleep. So you're talking about a child who's six years old who's having difficulty with emotional regulation, just developmentally speaking, yeah, and throwing on top of it a lack of sleep. This sounds like a recipe for disaster. It sure does. On September 19th, 2019, Kaya was attending school at a charter academy in West Orlando, Florida. Now, Kaya arrived on this morning, exhausted from a lack of sleep as usual, and she had a pretty tough morning. And that morning, she was wearing her sunglasses to class. Now, I don't know why she was wearing them. I don't know if she was tired, if she was trying to hide her tired eyes or her tears, or if a six-year-old's just being six years old and they decide, today, I'm going to wear my sunglasses. Exactly. But either way, the teacher did not allow this and told Kaya that she needed to take her glasses off. Kaya didn't want to take them off, so the teacher took them away. And this was the catalyst for a huge temper tantrum. Kaya got very upset and she started screaming, kicking, and hitting staffers who were trying to calm her down. The little girl then tried to run away when a teacher's aide led her to an office where she was held while staffers blocked the door. Wow. At this point, the school resource officer, do you know what a school resource officer is? Yeah, I do. I cover this in my policy class. So it's an officer at the school, serves as a police officer in the school to help, you know, as a liaison to make sure that the students are protected, but also to intervene if there's any crimes between students and each other or staff members. Yes. Often it's usually a retired police officer who is in this position. And in this story, it was a policeman named Officer Turner. Now, Officer Turner got involved. He zip-tied Kaya's hands behind her back. Whoa. And get this, Megan, he arrested her. She's sick throwing a... Did she have any history, by the way? I'm like shocked that he zip-tied her hands. I mean, this is a small child. Well, do you know why he zip-tied them? Because they were too small for his handcuffs. So he then had Mm -hmm. to move to the zip-ties. I could have guessed that for sure. It's still surprising. Does she have any history of... I know you said maybe temper tantrums, but like violence against any of the staff members that you could find? No, just the only thing I was able to find is that she had some behavioral problems in school. Also, again, we're talking about a six-year-old, so she doesn't have that much time to really have a record in school even because she just recently started school, right, at six years old. And also, let me tell you, this was also in September of the school year. Right, okay. So this is really early on in the school year. Okay. But this whole thing was caught on body cam. So in body cam footage, you can hear the little girl saying, what are those for? And the officer responded, it's for you. And as he tied the zip ties on, Kaya started to cry. No, don't put handcuffs on. Help me. Help me. Now, there was another officer present as well. This video is really hard to watch because we're talking about a baby here. And the body camera footage also shows the officers leading her through the school as she's screaming and crying, quote, I don't want handcuffs on. No, don't put handcuffs on. Help me. Help me. Please help me. Oh, my gosh. She is then led to a police vehicle that was parked outside the school where Kaya then says, I don't want to go in the police car. And the officer says, you don't want to go? You have to. And as she is placed in the back of the vehicle, you can hear her crying and repeatedly saying, please, please. This video then shows one of the officers going back into the office and chatting with several office staff members. At this point, he told them, that he had arrested 6,000 people in his 28 years and that Kaya had, quote, broken the record. 
because until that day, the youngest person he had ever arrested was seven, as if this was something to be proud of or to boast about. This is like, sounds like he's bragging and who's arresting six and seven year olds? So this video will be on our YouTube channel. Megan, I would definitely suggest taking a look. I was going to play it for you, but I'd rather just tell you the important parts and kind of get on with the story. Sure. First of all, I don't know where they're taking her, but did they also notify a guardian? You would have thought that they would have called Marilyn earlier, but they actually didn't call Marilyn, her grandmother and her primary caregiver until Kaya was already in the back of a police car. And they said Kaya had kicked a staff member at the school and that she was being charged with battery and taken to the juvenile assessment center. Charged with battery. I mean, you have to be able to form intent. How is a six-year-old supposed to form intent for battery? So as any parent or guardian would do, Marilyn begged them to bring her back to the school. She told them of her sleep disturbances and how the family was trying to get her help. And I'm not sure if this school knew about the sleep issues prior to this or if she had an official diagnosis. But either way, like, why are you waiting to call a guardian until a child is in the back of a police car? Not to mention, why is a child in the back of a police car? You know, this, this just reminds me of juvenile rights. I don't know if we're going to talk about it all. No. But, you know, I teach. Oh, OK. You know, when I'm teaching about Galt and the Kent cases and whatnot, these were cases that established this is a time where kids could be taken. The parents didn't have to be notified. They could be seen in front of a judge, forced to confess, sentenced to a term of detention and never have been notified of what they were even being held for or had their parents present. Yeah. And despite Marilyn's pleas, Kaya was charged with misdemeanor battery. She had to stand on a stool for her mugshots because she was too short. Oh, my gosh. And she was also fingerprinted. But the prosecutor still has the option here. I have to believe that someone's going to say this is absurd. Yes, and you're right. As we would hope, the prosecutor did drop this case. So the next day it was brought, as we see in our system, first you make an arrest and then it's the prosecution who decides whether or not the charges go further. And the prosecutor in this case dropped the charges and expunged her record. Okay. I mean, this even sounds so ridiculous. Why would a six-year-old even have a record or have to be in this situation? So I don't know if the officers were trying to make a point, trying to, you know, was this a scared straight ideology? Did they want her to see the consequences of her action? Or did these officers actually believe that this child should be charged with battery? Regardless of which one, this is unacceptable and ludicrous. I think it's that they have no tolerance and that they're probably not prepared to actually work as school resource officers because you do have to deal with children. Yes. Sorry, I don't know why this just annoys me. It should. Well, I know why, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, this should annoy you. Kaya was returned to her grandmother after this traumatizing experience. But as you could imagine, Megan, this ordeal sparked intense anxiety in the little girl. In fact, her sleep disturbances were made even worse. She would often wake up screaming at night she would wet her bed and she ended up having to sleep with her grandmother on a permanent basis because that is the only way anyone could get any sleep in their home. Her grandmother, Marilyn, experienced trauma too, saying, quote, when he said arrested, all the wind went out of me. My brain could not process that she had been arrested and taken to a juvenile center, she said. When I went into the office, there was a charge sheet. Next to the sheet, there were two photographs of my six-year-old granddaughter, one was a side view of her face and one was a front view of her face. Amy, what year was this again? 2019. Okay, thank you. you right, you hear something. There's like, oh, this must be in the 70s, <laughs> right? Not 2019. I just needed some context for this. I'm just trying, yeah, I, I am trying to place it. Like, is this during a get, get tough era or whatnot? But it's no matter what era, it would still be shocking. Yes. 
Marilyn also reported that, quote, they have ruined her life over something that was 100% preventable. She's still a loving child, but she's not as fun and loving the way she once was. Before, she saw some good in everything, and nothing used to bring her down. But now, she has to bring herself out of despair. Marilyn did bring Kaya to therapy, where she was diagnosed with PTSD. And she also has an intense fear of police officers. As I mentioned, her sleep disturbances continued, so she's also still struggling with the sleep apnea. So now we're talking about a child who is struggling in school even worse than before, a situation that is 100%, as Marilyn says, preventable. I don't know where you're going to go next with this, but I have 100 questions. And one of them is, what happened to the officers who arrested her? Did the school step in? Did they intervene? Was there a punishment? What happened? Good question. Mr. Turner, the arresting officer, was fired almost immediately by the Orlando Police Department. And it was because he violated procedure because the Florida Police Department had a requirement in which officers must get supervisory approval if they arrest anyone under the age of 12. Okay. Yet in this case, of course, Mr. Turner did not. So I believe this was the grounds for his termination, the fact that he did not follow procedure. Okay. But I would hope that he would have been let go anyway. This is like a violation of just human rights right here, right? But they needed to, you know, it violated a procedure that they had on the book. So it was easy for them to make a clean break here. Right. But I don't think this is enough. Spring is in the air and that means it's time for a refresh. I'm talking about luxuriously soft and stylish loungewear, pajamas, and bedding from Cozy Earth. I'd live in this loungewear full-time if that was an option. In fact, it's pretty much the option right now, just so you know. I actually have a couple of sets of the bamboo pajama sets. I have both the long sleeve one for when it's a little bit colder, and I have the short sleeve one. Because now that I'm pregnant, I'm sleeping a little bit hotter these days, and between the short sleeve pajama set and my bamboo sheets, my sleep is like a dream. You literally can't go wrong with Cozy Earth. And the reason why is because Cozy Earth products are made with soft, temperature-regulating viscose from bamboo. This is the secret ingredient. My favorite products are the sheets because the sheets are my every night sleeping. I have finally found the sheets that I sleep the most comfortably in and especially because I sleep cool and that's what I need for a comfortable night of sleep. Best of all, Cozy Earth products come with a 100 night sleep trial. That means that you can sleep on it and wash it for up to 100 nights. And if you're not in love, you can return it for a full refund. Fall in love with everyday luxury at Cozy Earth. Go to CozyEarth.com and enter our promo code CRIME, C-R-I-M-E, at checkout for up to 35% off. That's CozyEarth.com, promo code CRIME. Marilyn filed many lawsuits. Oh, I'll bet. In August of 2022, she filed a lawsuit against Florida police for cruel, senseless, and terrorizing arrests. Because the family says that the arrest was simply done to instill fear and humiliation in the child and that they use excessive force, false arrests, and malicious prosecution. The family also filed a suit against the city of Orlando, the police officers involved in the arrest, and their supervisor. Now, they were only seeking $50,000 in compensation to cover Kaya's suffering for her psychological and for her emotional and medical expenses. 
Now, I think they deserve much more than that because I think I'm surprised that anyone would take the case and and not suggest or insist on a much higher amount, to be honest. But clearly this wasn't about the money for them. Yes. They were looking to do more because Marilyn did not spend her time arguing in civil court. Marilyn became a staunch advocate against the criminalization of children. In fact, Marilyn testified before the Florida Senate Committee on Children, Families and Elder Affairs. And this was in support of a bill to prevent children under the age of seven from being arrested. Now, at the time of Kaya's detainment, there was no minimum age for arrests in Florida. Seven is still quite young. I, I mean, agree. I it's agree. very hard to draw the line. Where do you draw the line? Is it seven? Is it eight? Is it nine? Is it? But seven instinctually sounds way too young still. Yes. And Marilyn and other advocates were still fighting, though, and they actually wanted the age limit to be raised to at least 14. And some might say it should be lower than that. But regardless, they did recognize that seven was still quite low. But the bill named the Kaya Roll Act was sponsored by State Senator Randolph Bracey, and it was passed in the Florida Senate on March 2nd, 2021. And it states, quote, a child younger than seven years of age may not be adjudicated delinquent arrested or charged with a violation of law or a delinquent act on the basis of acts occurring before he or she reaches seven years of age unless the violation of law is a forcible felony. Wait, so they're still saying there's a provision? So they're still saying there's a provision. And as I mentioned, Marilyn and other advocates are still fighting this because I don't think this is good enough because seven is still much too young. And there is still this unless the violation of law is a forcible felony. So they're pretty much saying that a child under seven can form some sort of criminal intent. <laughs> intent is a whole discussion, right? A whole, I, I'm sure we'll discuss it. They can form some intent, maybe, but the intent, felonious intent and understand the consequences or the repercussions, that's all implicated in intent. So I beg to differ. On well, Megan, you're going to be shocked because I did not know this, but. 24 U.S. states currently have no minimum age for prosecuting children, and there is also no federal law. Although in the federal system, you must be at least 11 to be arrested. Okay. Let me give you some more stats here because I think you will be shocked. According to the National Juvenile Justice Network, the U.S. is an outlier in this issue because most other countries already have legislation in place about child arrests. So in most other countries, the minimum age is 14. So the age of criminal responsibility differs from place to place because there's a difference between right. criminal responsibility, arrest, prosecution, incarceration. Right. Right. So there's a lot of different stages here. Yes. But as of 2023, of the states that do have a minimum age, North Carolina is the lowest, saying that as young as six years old. And then we have states like Maryland and New Hampshire that have the highest at 13 years old. Although a lot of states have exceptions on the books. So just like we heard in the Kaya Roll Act, there was this provision unless forcible felony. So almost all states have some sort of provision to this. I'd like to know what they're suggesting the punishment for a six-year-old who commits a felony should be. I mean, are they suggesting juvenile detention or that they should receive a punishment that extends over to their adulthood? It's just perplexing. It's very perplexing. And when you look at the types of crimes that children are being arrested for, we're seeing a lot of truancy, curfew violation or behavioral issues that lead to what they say battery. 
More than 2,000 children between the ages of 5 to 12 were arrested in Florida just during the fiscal year of 2021 to 2022. So these children, age 5 to 12, made up about 5% of youth arrests, according to the latest Department of Juvenile Justice data. You heard me say five, right? Five years old. I, I heard you say it. I just, I heard it. And it sounds like a lot of these are status offenses too. I mean, which I definitely cover when I talk about female juvenile delinquency. So these are offenses that are not criminal, but they're only criminal because of the offender's age. So truancy or curfew violation or drinking. Yep. And I don't think you'll be surprised to know that these policies disproportionately impact students of color students with disabilities, and students in the LGBTQ community. After so many years of working in the system, I'm not surprised to hear that whatsoever. Amy, is Kaya Black? Again, yes, she is. And almost all of the examples that I found of children in these situations, at least the ones that I found in my research, were also students of color. Now, recently, USA Today collected 28 million arrest records for more than 8,000 law enforcement agencies that participated in the FBI's National Incident-Based Reporting System. And this was looking at it over two decades. And the newspaper's analysis of federal crime identified more than 2,600 arrests in schools that involved children between the ages of five and nine. And this was in the years between 2000 and 2019. Now, this is an average of 130 children a year that are arrested in school. And as we know, these numbers are always an underreport of what the numbers actually are. Those are national numbers. I gave you the Florida numbers before. There are a lot of these cases that come out of Florida. And this is certainly not the first time a Florida school resource officer in a Florida school has acted out of line. Unfortunately, there have been many similar cases. There was a case of a 16-year-old named Taylor Bracey, and there was a video that showed the student being body slammed by a school resource officer. And this child now has memory loss, headaches, blurry vision. And this was after she was acting, quote, out of line. And then there was another 15-year-old girl who was tased by a school resource officer after he was trying to break up an altercation between the teen and another student. Although she was in a fight mm -hmm. at the moment, I do think that there's other ways to de-escalate a situation and not to tase a 15-year-old girl. This teen had been charged for battery on a law enforcement officer and resisting arrest. So let me just say, Amy, that I do agree mostly, but I also will say at 15, it might be a different scenario. I have no idea what the physical capability is, mm -hmm. how hard it might be. You know, some 15-year-olds yes. can be big. Yep. There's hormones and it might be appropriate. I'm not totally saying it yes. can't be appropriate to tase a 15-year-old. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound good. But I do see at least with a teenager who's substantially larger mm -hmm. and has more physical capabilities, that there might be more physical strength might be needed. And I think that's a fair point because remember, Kaya is a six-year-old, right? And that's very different. Another case I came across that I think could be comparable was a 10-year-old in Detroit was arrested for aggravated assault after hitting a kid in the face during a game of dodgeball. What? Now, we weren't there. It could have been purposeful. And maybe it wasn't just part of the game. But 10 years old, there, to me, there's a very big difference between a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old. I'd also like to anecdotally point out that I've never liked dodgeball. And I do feel like this is one of the reasons because I don't think a game where the whole object is really to hit someone <laughs> with a ball is really appropriate for kids. But OK. So this is a disturbing pattern because black girls are more likely to be perceived as adult as compared with their white counterparts. And black girls face much harsher punishments in school 
Needless to say, we see this even more so with young black boys. This story just happened to be about a young black girl. Right. So this brings me into the conversation. You and I have spoken about this, the school to prison pipeline. Now, the school to prison pipeline refers to education and public safety policies that push students into the criminal legal system or the criminal justice system, depending how you want to say it. So basically, school sends students into the pipeline through zero tolerance disciplinary policies. Now, we're talking about policies that involve police intervention for minor misbehavior. And this is happening in schools that are in marginalized areas with students of color. And these misbehaviors lead directly to arrests and juvenile detention referrals. And these can even result in criminal charges and incarceration. So in other words, schools are indirectly, to me, it's actually pretty directly, pushing students into the pipeline through suspending them, expelling them. And even, you know, I've read about high stakes testing requirements, right? There's so much going on in these marginalized schools that are just setting up these youth for failure. Absolutely. And in criminology, we talk a lot about labeling theory. Sure do. If you're going to treat a child like a criminal, if a child needs to go through a metal detector to get into their school and there's armed guards next to their lockers and they're being handcuffed because they're talking back to a teacher, of course, this can lead them down a path in which they start to become exactly what they are being treated as. I promise you I will talk about the other side. I'm not being one-sided here. There are some children that do need to be apprehended and are dangerous yeah. to teachers and other students. I agree. I think the problem with some of these policies, it was it came in the era of basically zero tolerance policing, but zero tolerance in schools, whereby everybody was expelled for minor behaviors, like throwing the net over everyone. So, of course, you probably want to see expulsion for a child who brings a loaded firearm to school yes, or, you know, for dangerous children who are assessed as dangerous to other children, to faculty, to anyone in that school. Yes. But these policies, they expelled kids for fighting. Right. And this is fighting that may have happened before, but it was treated as such. It was treated maybe less serious or other offenses, uh, graffiti, possession of a controlled substance Mm -hmm. in a small amount, like all these things that likely ahead of time children weren't being expelled for. All of a sudden, they're just throwing them out. Another theory that comes to mind, right? We talk about social control theory. If you're going to expel a student, what do you expect the student is now going to be doing with their, quote, free time? They're not going to be home studying. No. They're just making the situation worse instead of helping the child and finding out the root of the problem. Right. Now, the good news here, Megan, is that there is a lot that can be done. Schools and families do have the power to divert students from the school-to-prison pipeline. Of course, it takes a lot of work and a lot of action, but there are several steps. So we're going to just talk about a few suggestions here. Okay. So I think, first off, we need to better train teachers on how to use positive behavior modification, and this is specifically for at-risk students. Recognizing positive behavior goes a long way. The power of positive reinforcement cannot be overstated. Agreed. You know, when you look at differential reinforcement, Mm -hmm. the idea of people responding to rewards and punishments. Right. I mean, I'm sure a lot of us have seen this. I've seen this with when Toby was a puppy, even when my kids were young. And I don't mean to compare children to animals, but they both respond better with positive reinforcement rather than negative reinforcement. So there's something to be learned here. You know, if we try to help these students, I think we'll see much better outcomes. And even more importantly, we need to work with police departments and court systems to simply limit the arrests at schools. 
Right. And if we're going to have officers in our schools, we need to train them to deal appropriately with children and adolescents. So agreed. Developmentally appropriate training and trauma informed training. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on those. And I uh, listen, I do think there are students that have to be taken out of schools. I really do. And I think there Mm -hmm. there is a recognition of that. I just think it should be a selective recognition. Yes. But we can't always use positive reinforcement. It's preferred. But yeah, there is punishment and there's a time for it. Yes. But it shouldn't be used as a, you know, a net policy. Yes. It should be used as a selective policy. And what I'm thinking here, Megan, is this is one of those problems that needs a holistic approach. If we're working with police departments and court systems to limit these arrests at schools, working on training officers, we also have to use home and family interventions that are designed to create behavior modifications for students and families. We can't expect our teachers to do all the work here. Absolutely. The work has to start at home. Increasing social workers and mental health professionals in schools but more importantly, appropriately financially compensating these individuals. Sure. Because as people who work in education, and we know many people who work in the mental health profession, unfortunately, you're dealing with a lot and you're usually underpaid and you just don't have all the tools you need to properly help these children. That's true. And then the last point I want to make as far as, you know, what we can do is maybe try out some restorative justice measures. Now, restorative justice is an approach that aims to repair victims. It's where offenders take responsibility and really understand harm. So it's what's known as like an inclusive process. So it would bring together the students who were both the victim or the offender or the students involved in the situation, along with educators to try to approach the situation differently. But I think it's important to recognize that there are a lot of criticisms surrounding restorative justice practices, Mm -hmm. particularly in schools, because it can erode legal rights. It can trivialize serious offenses, and it can also net widen, which you touched on briefly. This is when we expand the social control over individuals, and that is often an unintentional consequence of restorative justice practices. Yes. But it can empower students to be an active part in resolving the conflict. And I don't know if you said this, Amy, but did you talk about Well, when you talk about proper training, I think proper training really includes a focus on schools and de-escalation techniques. Yes, yes, yes. So I think that is super important when you're talking about resource training or for officers and for others, it is about de-escalation. So instead of de-escalating, this officer escalated up by arresting this kid, Mm -hmm. freaking her out, panicking her. You know, there was a pivotal point there where he probably could have turned this whole situation around Yep, if he was better trained. I think that's a great point. As we touched on briefly, Megan, there are some children who should not be in the school setting. We've heard of a a six-year-old child who brought a gun to school not long ago and shot their teacher. Now, even in that situation, I personally don't believe that child should be arrested. I think the parents need to be looked at because why does a six-year-old have a gun in a school? But more importantly, that child clearly needs help. That child needs to be removed from the school, but not in handcuffs. With someone who has mental health training who can help us understand what events led a six-year-old to bring a gun into a school. Yeah, I just agree there's a way to remove and detain a child without making it so formal. And traumatizing. Yeah, and I think because of the size also of a six-year-old, once the threat of a firearm is removed, there's a very good way that you can, you don't have the same concern as if you're facing an adult who might flee or who might, you know, have other form of retaliation. So I think there's a way to do that. But I agree with you. A six-year-old who brings a gun to school and shoots their teacher does need to be dealt with in a different way. 
Yes, but they do not need to be booked. They do not need to be fingerprinted. And they certainly do not need to be arrested in their elementary school for everyone to see because that's traumatizing to all the other students as well. No, I think there needs to be a different procedure. Absolutely. For children. Yeah. So I I guess the point is that if there's a six-year-old who is a danger to other children, they do need to be removed from the situation in a way that is safe for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think being removed by an armed police officer in handcuffs, I, I think there's probably a better way we can do that. I agree. We do need to better train school resource officers on how to have a trauma-informed approach. In other words, they need to secure the environment. They need to get that firearm away from the child, make sure the sure. teachers and the students are safe, but do so in a way that is not going to further traumatize that student and the other students as well. Well said. So again, there's a lot of things that can be done and a lot of things that are being done in schools across the country, as unfortunately we hear more and more about these types of cases. The ACLU and the Sentencing Project are two organizations that are doing a lot of work on this issue. And you could donate if you are interested in the causes or just to learn more about these issues. As always, you know, getting informed, spreading the word goes a long way. And I hope that we see less of these types of cases. And I hope that Kaya and her family can find a way forward. Do we have an update on Kaya's situation today? This is four years after the fact. Do we know what's happened with the lawsuit? Do we know Kaya? The most uh, recent update I found was Marilyn is still fighting by advocating against the criminalization of children and trying to push forward legislation that will change the age. Because remember, she did successfully change it to seven, but her and other advocates are trying to change it to even older in Florida. Sure. And, you know, this cause is now going over state lines into other states, not just Florida. And the last I heard, Kaya is continues to struggle, but she is moving forward the best she can. Thank you for the update on Kaya. I want to tell you that not at the age level that you've discussed, but this is one of those topics that I do cover in my policy analysis class. We talk about transfer laws. So transfer laws are those laws that allow a prosecutor or a judge to take a juvenile and waive them from juvenile court up to criminal court. Now, this can be done in a number of ways. It can be done by the offense It can be done by judicial discretion. They take a number of factors, looking at the history, possible danger. And so there's all these different factors that determine whether or not a juvenile can be transferred from juvenile court to adult court. Now, the implications are very, very far reaching. Remember, if you're tried in in a juvenile court, you're probably only facing a sentence up to 21 years old. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're tried in an adult court, you are facing substantially longer sentences. So there was a movement in the 1980s to start getting tough on crime. And with that came a lot of states passing these transfer laws and having juveniles being tried as adults. I'm not saying it's totally inappropriate. I throw it out to my students and I have some students who think that no situation ever warrants a juvenile being tried as an adult. And like, you know, I have other students who think it's very situational, with which I agree, by the way. I don't think I would never throw a blanket and say there's no situation that juveniles should not be tried in adult courts. I, I don't believe that's true. We just have to look at this, like you said, more holistically and also more sparingly. We have to reserve that kind of transfer to an adult court for the most serious of crimes. And yes, age appropriateness, it's hard to determine. What's the difference between a 14 and 15-year-old? We look at evolving standards of decency, 
we look at evolving science and we kind of hope that the courts, you know, will will follow that lead. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to add that to the ending. And thank you for such an interesting episode. Yeah, thank you, Megan. And thank you all so much for listening. But before we head out today, we just have one question I'd like to take from a supporter. The question is, and Megan, I'll probably take this one. Okay. In cases where accused are wrongfully convicted and then sue for damages, does this money come out of taxpayers' money? That is a great question and a topic that I will be covering in tonight's Patreon lecture. So for, I'll keep it kind of short and sweet, but for compensation for people wrongfully convicted, there's three avenues they can pursue. And yes, one of the three avenues does come out of taxpayers' money, and that would be state statutes. So every state has their own compensation statutes. 13 states do not have a statute on the book as of the time of this recording, but the states that do provide varying amounts. Some states provide $50,000 per year of wrongful conviction. Other states provide 100000 mm-hmm. Some states say that there's a cap. Some states don't provide a cap. Mm-hmm. Some states give services along with the money they offer. People can also be compensated through civil suits or private legislation. And the funds received through those avenues do not come from taxpayer money. So that is a short, abridged version of an answer to your question, which I love that question. Thank you so much for the thoughtful questions always. I thought it was a great question on the front ends of that, right? Just so you know, the wrongful prosecution and conviction also came from taxpayer money. Of course. That's a great point, (laughs) Megan. Yes. Yeah. Wrongful conviction costs society a lot of money, and it's not because of compensation. It's because of the wasted resources that we use to investigate and prosecute these cases. That is, I think, the strongest point of the day, Megan. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Following your lead. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening today, and we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content, such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women in crime. Sources for today's episode include the National Juvenile Justice Network, FloridaSenate.gov, Newsweek, the Center for Public Integrity, USA Today, Insider, and New York Times.